Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, church. My name is Graham. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is beautiful to be with you this morning. Uh, Last Tuesday, I had the privilege of going along to Alpha, which we host uh, here at City Reach. And I just really wanted to commend the Alpha team. They do an incredible job of providing food, providing an atmosphere that welcomes people in to ask questions. And uh, particularly Dave and Amanda, and we've got uh, Michael and Melinda, and I know Jeff and Carol, and... uh, you know, we've got Phil and Jan Green. We also have Mary and Gary Sperling. They just do an incredible job there. But um, Dave and Michael, they did this little thing to help the new people get to know them a little bit better. They said, uh, we just decided we're going to tell you what the last thing we Googled was. And uh, anyway, they come up with these profound and interesting things. And I started thinking, well, what would people think if they found my phone and they looked up the last thing I Googled? What would they find? And uh, to be honest, you'd probably be very disappointed uh, in what you would find. I'm a little bit of a news junkie, right? I like the headlines, and I'll, I'll just read the BBC app, you know, all the time. Uh, and it's amazing, you look at the news, it, more, more times than not, it reminds you of the fallen state of the human race, and you just kind of forget most of it. But I can remember reading an article in um, the 12th of September, 2008, and it really struck me, and it left me for a few days really thinking about this. The article was about a man named David Foster Wallace, um, and he had committed suicide that day. And the reason it kind of really impacted me was because David Foster Wallace was uh, a very well-known author. He wrote the book Infinite Jest, Uh, which has been voted one of the uh, 100 best English novels ever written. And I'd always wanted to read this book. It was always my ambition to read this book. I hadn't got around to it. But more importantly than that, I had read a quote from David Foster Wallace just a few days before. Now, he, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a believer. But he had this incredible insight just by observing people around him. And this is what he said. This is a picture of who he was. You can see at the back behind Disneyland there. So that's David Foster Wallace. And this is what he said. He said, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then he went on to elaborate. He said this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. You worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. You worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need more and more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out 
and so on. So here we have David Foster Wallace, and he is hitting on something here. We all worship something or someone. See, the definition of worship is literally worth-ship. It is the value that you ascribe to something or someone, right? It is what value or worth you give to it. And David Foster Wallace says, if, if you give all that you value, all your worth, all your worship to money, the body, sex, power, it never fulfills. It never satisfies and it will eventually fail you. The question we're going to ask ourselves today is, what or who do we worship? What or who do we really worship? When our lives are measured under the microscope, what would people say we really worship? Uh, If you are new with us this morning, and it's your first time here at City Reach, it's awesome to have you. We are, as a church, taking a slow walk through the Gospel of John. And in John... The author, he is making a case of who we should worship, who is the one that we should value and treasure and be devoted to above all else. And John actually states, this is the reason why I wrote this gospel. This is the reason. And he says this in, uh, it comes from chapter 20, verse 30 of of John's gospel. He says, this is the reason why I wrote it. And this is what it says. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John chooses seven miracles that Jesus did. He highlights these seven miracles throughout his gospel and he calls them signs. He says these signs, they point to, they give evidence to the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. Right now, one thing that we have to learn is that the sign is not the destination or the reality. It is only pointing towards the reality and the destination. So I want you to imagine there's a family that you know, and their dream has always been to go to Disneyland. So they save up, they save up, and finally their dream comes true. They buy tickets from Australia to Orlando, Florida, and they land there, they rent a car, and they're on their way to Disneyland, finally. And they're driving along, and they see a sign that says Disneyland. And there's joy and happiness in the car, but then they stop at the sign, and they get out, and they look at the sign, and they begin taking photos of them at the sign, selfies, and they begin talking about the sign. Oh, look at that D. Isn't that amazing? By the way, this doesn't really lead to Disneyland, right? So just in case you were wondering if you follow it. The legends made this for us this week. They are amazing. But they looked at it, and they become so fascinated by the sign, and then they all jump back in the car, and they go home. You would think What a weird family, right? They missed out. They missed out on the real thing. They never really got there. You see, the sign is only pointing towards the real thing. And what John is doing here, he's saying each of these signs, each of these miracles 
Don't become so obsessed with the sign itself. Look what it's pointing to. It's pointing to Jesus, and it is who he says he was. And here's the thing. Of these seven signs, they get more and more powerful, more and more confrontational, until finally we get to the greatest sign of all, the resurrection of Lazarus. And that's what we heard about last week, right? Now, the religious leaders of the day, they didn't pointing to, it's pointing a bit, right? Jesus was a threat to them. And every sign he performed was making them feel more and more uncomfortable. But this sign, this raising of Lazarus from the dead, this is huge. This isn't just a sick person getting better. It's not water maybe tasting like wine. This one, no one could explain. This is the resurrection of a stinky, decaying, smelly corpse coming back to life and walking out of the grave. It's a pretty compelling sign. Now you would think everyone would be amazed and thrilled at this. Here is someone who has power over death. But not so for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Here's their reaction, right? It comes from John chapter 11. It says this, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These guys are not talking about the fact that Lazarus just got raised from the dead. They're talking about their own position. These guys are worshiping power that they have, and they're concerned about themselves. And along comes Caiaphas, the high priest, and he reckons, I've got a solution to all this. And this is what he says. He says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And what Caiaphas is really saying, he calls them all together. He says, guys, listen, you guys are fools. you idiots. You haven't seen the big picture here. We have to kill this guy. He says it in nice language, but that's what he's saying. We have to kill this guy because it's the best thing that we can do to protect ourselves and, of course, our nation He's saying it's much better that we kill this one man than we lose everything that we've got. Now, Caiaphas, he's actually rather ruthless and cunning, but he unknowingly gives this incredible prophecy. He gives this clear prophecy of exactly what Jesus' death would accomplish. Right? It was true that one man should die for the whole nation, and not even for the whole nation, but for the whole world, that no one else should perish. But that's not what Caiaphas is thinking in his heart. In his heart, he is plotting a murder, and the reason, get this, the reason he is plotting a murder is because Jesus raised someone to life. Caiaphas did not like the sign. He did not like the sign because the sign pointed to the fact that Jesus was king and not them. See, Caiaphas and the rest of the Pharisees worshipped power 
And like David Foster Wallace says, when you worship power, you will ever need more and more power over people because really you are afraid. You get to the point where you will even consider plotting murder. So now, we find ourselves at a dinner party. And the dinner party is held in Bethany. It's very close to Jerusalem. And it's six days before the Passover. Jesus is literally sitting in enemy territory because they're planning on killing him. And the atmosphere in Jerusalem is incredibly tense and electric. Everyone is talking about Jesus. They've heard about this sign and they're wondering, will he come? Will he arrive at the feast? And some are saying, no, I don't think he'll come. It's too dangerous. And others are saying, no, he has to come. And Jesus himself knows that in six days, he is going to be stretched out on a cross, giving his life for those who hated him. But that's the opening scene of chapter 12. This is what it says. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I mean, that's just the understatement of the year, right? Such a casual thing, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Just mentions it so casually, but so, so powerful. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So the Gospel of Mark tells us they're actually at Simon the leper's house, and Matthew tells us that the disciples are there too. So we've got a, a dinner party of about 20 people, and it's a celebration, right? It is a thank you, Jesus, for raising Lazarus. Now, if you've had someone close to you die, and they've actually been dead a few days, or you yourself have died, it's a pretty joyous thing, because they're kind of back with you, and now they're alive. And all this is happening against the backdrop that they wanted to kill Jesus because of this. Some are rejoicing in this fact, but others are plotting his murder. I don't know if, if anyone's walked up to you and they say, do you want the good news or the bad news, right? Has that ever happened to you? How many of you say, I want the good news first? Okay, there's two optimists in the room, right? All the rest of you tell me the worst. Okay, so here we are at this dinner party and out of it comes incredibly good news. And there's also bad news, right? The good news is so good that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about what happened at this party. So here we are, right? People are having dinner, and Martha is serving, right? That's what Martha loved to do. She had this gift of hospitality, and she's really working hard. She's serving people. She's serving tables. Everyone's enjoying it. But just a second, right? Have we not seen this picture before? Right? The Gospel of Luke tells us that it's not the first time Jesus has had a meal with these sisters, and the first time, it was pretty much the same thing. You got Martha and Mary working really hard, and then Mary wanders off, and she goes and sits at Jesus' feet, listening to him, spending time with him, and Martha is not impressed with her sister at all. In fact, she storms in, and she asks Jesus, please tell my sister off. She says, Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all this on my own? Tell her to help me. But Jesus ends up doing the exact opposite. He ends up correcting Martha, and he says to Martha, Martha, 
you are anxious and troubled about many things. Mary has chosen the good portion. Now that's pretty embarrassing if you're Martha, right? You wouldn't want to repeat the same thing. Now we're at dinner again and Martha's serving again, but this time she is at peace. So what's changed? What's changed? Circumstances haven't changed. It's still a dinner party and Martha's still serving. The difference is Martha's heart had been changed. You see, Jesus wasn't telling her, you need to become Mary. Martha knew that Jesus' insistence that Mary had chosen the good portion did not mean serving in the kitchen and serving tables was bad. That's such a good thing because no one would have eaten, right? So she actually did the right thing. She's using her gift. But what Jesus was saying to her was, Martha, you're hurried, you're unhappy, your judgmental attitude, your troubled heart is what's separating you from me. And it's separating you from others. Guys, the exact same thing can be true of us. The things we do, we can do them by complaining, we can do them with being bitter and judgmental to others, and what's even worse is outwardly we can pretend to bless with our mouths, while inwardly we curse in our hearts. Really, they should be helping me. And what that does is it shows what you're really worshiping what you're really worshiping. You see, two people can do exactly the same thing. And for one, it is worship, it is devotion to Jesus. And for the other, it is a worship of something else. Maybe it is the worship of recognition. Right, Martha, look, I'm doing this all on my own. I deserve to be recognized. But that's not Martha anymore. She's totally different. And now the same thing she's doing, she's doing it as worship to Jesus, and she's at peace. So this is going great, right? So far the meal is working out perfectly. Martha's a different person. There's a great celebration. We've got good friends, good food. And I mean, can you imagine the conversation that's taking place at this dinner? You've got Simon, the ex-leper, stands up and he goes, guys, you wouldn't believe it. My, my fingers were falling off. I had all these skin lesions all over me. No one would talk to me. I was an outcast. Along came Jesus. He healed me. Look at me now. I've got skin like a baby. And you've got Lazarus. He goes, sit down, Simon. I've got a better story. I was dead for four days. And look at me now. I was smelling. I was bad, but he called me out. And then this happens. It says this. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nod and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. So you can imagine in all the hustle bustle of this dinner party, Mary goes off. And she's rummaging through her belongings. She's looking for something. She's looking for something that's such a treasure to her. And she picks it up, and it's something that would have cost almost a year's wages. That's how valuable it was. I don't know how she got it, whether someone left it to her, or she had saved up and saved up and finally bought it. But she finds this jar, 
And inside this jar is this nard, this really, really expensive nard, which would have come from the Himalayan mountains. So it's come a long way. What is Mary going to do with it? She takes this nod and she comes up and in front of everyone she smashes it on the floor. Then she takes this ointment and she anoints Jesus and she, she gets down to his feet and she's rubbing this ointment on her feet. And then she does something which goes against all public appropriateness for a woman in that day. And she lets down her hair. She takes her hair and with her hair she washes the feet of Jesus. Like what? An extravagant thing to do. Love is incredibly lavish. It's above all else. We look at Mary's actions and we think, how costly and how generous her act of worship is. If you look to that in today's terms, let's just say the average salary is $1,000 a week. That means that that little jar costs about $50,000 given away. That was Mary's treasured possession. Our treasured possessions might not be worth as much as Mary's, right? I get the feeling, you look at Martha, I don't think Martha was particularly concerned or valued perfume, right? For her, it was acts of service. And that was her sacrifice to Jesus, was her service to him. For Mary, it was this treasured possession of this perfume. What's our most treasured possession? And would we give it? For some of us, it might be our leisure time. This is our treasured possession. Above all else, this is what we've got. For others of us, it might be our bank accounts. Or a relationship. And the question we have to ask is, would we give it to Jesus? Would we make it available for Jesus to use? And Mary, she humbly gives her very best. She totally forgets about herself, right? She didn't care what others thought. Jesus was worth it. Jesus was above all else in her mind. And it was her love for him that compelled her to do this, to honor him this way. And John says, this fragrance, it filled the house. It filled the house. You see, she didn't give just a little. She broke the jar. She gave him everything. Um, we have this book at home, and it's a children's book. And so I read it with my kids. It's called Halfway Herbert by Francis Chan. And it's the story of Herbert who does everything halfway, right? He, he brushes his teeth halfway. He does his homework halfway. And the story goes about what happens when you live your life halfway. You never really give everything. And of course, in a childlike way, in a childlike manner, it encourages the child to live a life of wholeheartedness, not half-heartedness, but wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Guys, you we can be a halfway Herbert too. You see, that, that fragrance, that smell, that aroma of Jesus that his body now gave off, it was honoring to him, but it was a blessing to everyone else. That kind of thing doesn't occur when we give him half our heart. 
It doesn't occur when we give him half our talents. It doesn't occur when we give him half our ambition or half our lives. It occurs when we give him everything. Everything that she had. Now imagine, imagine Mary had only poured out a little. It would have smelt for a short time. But do you realize that for the next few days, wherever Jesus went, people would still smell that rare perfume? That when they spat on him a few days later, his body would still have smelled beautiful. When they nailed him to the cross, they would have still smelt this aroma of Christ. When they laid him in the tomb, this aroma, this fragrance, this beauty would have still been hanging around. And that's all because Mary gave it all. She did it with her heart because he was worth it. And that's the good news of that, that, that meal. Jesus said, because she did that, we're going to be talking about her wherever the gospel goes. And here we are. 2,000 years later in Adelaide, Australia, talking about Mary. Here's the bad news. Everyone at that meal saw this and thought, what an extreme act of generosity. What an extra extravagant worship she performed. But it was worth it because it was for Jesus. It was fitting for him. Everyone thought that was amazing and the right thing to do, everyone except one, Judas. Judas Iscariot does not see this as extravagant worship. He sees it as an extravagant waste. This is what it says. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I mean, Judas actually sounds quite impressive there, right? A nice, sensitive guy. This guy, he cares about the poor. And really, he's just using like these ethical, impressive words just to disguise his greed. It goes on to say, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Guys, in the same room, the same event, seeing the exact same things, you have completely different reactions. You have Mary there who's absolutely selfless. She's generous. She is giving all she had. And then you have Judas who is selfish and greedy, wanting to take which is not his. Amazing thing with Judas is you see how he tries to conceal it? How he's deceitful? I mean, he sounds concerned about the poor, right? But he wasn't. And Jesus knows this. Jesus looks at him and says, you know, Judas, you can go and help the poor anytime. Why don't you? Why don't you? And it wasn't that Judas wanted to help the poor. He didn't. The real reason is quite simple. Judas's biggest trouble was that he was greedy. He wanted more and more and more. 
And since he had this trusted position of the treasurer who kept charge of the money, instead of being trustworthy, he used to just dip into the money bag and help himself. And when he saw that perfume being poured out, he thought, there goes my chance. You know, there have been many books and commentaries written about Judas. And uh, a lot of them go on to say that, you know, the reason Judas did this was because he, he had political dreams and aspirations of his own. He was, his concept of the Messiah was a little bit skewed, and Jesus was a little bit of a disappointment to him. But you know, the Bible doesn't allow for any of those. It just simply says, Judas was greedy. And I think part of us wants to believe that it was more complicated, that actually he did have political motivations and stuff, because that would kind of remove us from it. But we need to talk about greed. Um, in my time involved in ministry, which has been a long time, uh, I've had many people come up and, and share their struggles with sin with me, and I've shared my struggles of sin with others, and that's a good thing, that's an honoring thing, it keeps you accountable, it keeps you pursuing holiness, but in all my time, I have never, ever had anyone come up to me and say, I struggle with greed. I've had people come up and say they struggle with lust, they struggle with control, they struggle with pride. They struggle with trust, they struggle with unforgiveness, they struggle with stealing. But no one has ever said to me, I struggle with greed. But you know the amazing thing, on the other hand, and I include myself in this, so many times we point to others, oh, they greedy, or the greedy bankers, or that greedy country. It's always someone else. And yet, you look at the apostle Paul, and this was his stumbling block, right? He said, keeping the law blameless, but coveting, that's the one that got me. That's the one that got me, right? And it's the one that's so difficult to see. Because you see, you can, you can create laws that actually punish sin, right? So let's just say there's murder. You can tell people, it's very obvious when you've murdered someone, that's wrong and you'll go to jail. Stealing, that's pretty obvious, you can catch someone stealing, and we can send you to jail. But what about greed? How do you create a law against greed? What's going on in our hearts? Uh, I grew up with a, with a teenage hero, and uh, it was a, a guy by the name of, of Hansi Krenia. He was, uh, at that time, the South African cricket captain. And this guy, he, he had it all, right? He was, uh, was well-liked, he was an incredible leader, he was charming, he had the respect of many people, um, and he was a fantastic cricketer, and he was very, very well-paid for what he did. But one day, Hansi got a call, and uh, was from someone he didn't know, and he said, look, Hansi, all I want is a little bit of information about the upcoming match. Right? Not a lot, just a little bit, and I'll make it really worth your while. And Hansi thinks about it and he goes, you know what, it's, it's so small, no one will know, no one's seeing, it won't really make a difference to the match. So he tells him, and at the end of that match, 
This person he had never met arrives and gives him a beautiful leather jacket. And in that moment, Hansi's heart was gripped with greed. This easy money, which he didn't have to work for, which he could just get. And Hansi began to compromise and compromise and compromise and compromise till eventually it got to the point where he was he walking in to his teammate's hotel room. He's the captain of the team, of the national team, and he is telling them, if you intentionally perform badly, you will get this amount of money. The greed led him to corrupt others. You know the worst part about it is? He was even deceitful to the people he was trying to collude with. He told his teammates, if you do this, you'll get $20,000, but really he had been offered $40,000 for the same thing. So he was even trying to cheat his own teammates. But it began with a tiny, small thought planted in his mind, and greed began to take hold. You see, greed is essentially worship. It's the worship of money. It's like standing at a sign that says money. And if you follow this sign, it will lead to happiness, it will lead to fulfillment, it will lead to contentment, and it's, not, it's much better than anything else that you could have in your life. But like David Foster Wallace tells us, he said, it only leaves you empty and wanting more and more and more. You see, the promise of the sign fails to deliver. And the destination is not what it promises. For Hansi, the money, the idea of money and the lure of it promised happiness. It promised fulfillment. It promised contentment. And Hansi followed that path down as far as he could go. And it ended with shame and disgrace and being exposed. Greed leads to a whole bunch of other evil things, right? It leads to lying and deceit, and eventually it can even lead to Judas betraying the Son of God. And he did it for 30 silver coins. It's not even that much money. But he was so consumed by greed. Because I have a confession to make. The other day I was walking along and I saw a sign for the South Australian Lottery. And the winnings was quite a substantial amount. And anyway, I saw it and I walked on and I started thinking to myself, wow, what, what would I do if I had that much money? What would I buy if I had that much money? Where would I go if I had that much money? And then I kind of like deceive myself and I go, oh, but I would do lots of good as well. Yeah, I, I would. Guys, what's really happening there is that it's the small seed of greed creeping in. And it's the, the lie that thinks that if I have money, if I have this amount of money, it will make me happy. It will make me content. It will fulfill me. And I need to repent of that. But you know what really lies beneath that? Is this idea that actually I don't trust God enough with my own contentment and my own happiness I turn to another thing which I worship and not to him. Guys, we have to be very careful. Greed can get to all of us in a very subtle way. And that's not where we want to worship.
You see, Martha, she was serving with all she had. She worshiped, she valued, she devoted Jesus. Mary, she poured out all she had. She worshiped, she gave value, she gave adoration to Jesus. Mary and Martha both gave their best. They both spread an aroma, a fragrance. The one, through ordinary acts of service, right? She served, but she spread this beautiful aroma. The other, by giving all that she had, this expensive perfume. And they did it because they loved Jesus. They looked at Jesus and said, he is worth it. The beautiful thing is, guys, when we follow Christ, we too become that fragrance, that fragrance of his which follows us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to be a fragrant offering, which is honoring to him, but it is also an incredible blessing to everyone else around us? You see, David Foster Wallace said this. He said, Everyone worships, but everything we worship ultimately disappoints us. And I believe he was right when he said that everybody worships something. But he was wrong that he said everything that you worship will disappoint you. Because there is one who is worthy of our worship. There is one who is worthy of our devotion, of our attention, of our value. And he always satisfies, he always delivers, he always fulfills, and he always gives. And his name is Jesus. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Son of God. Every sign he performed pointed to the fact that he is the Son of God, raised from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the thing with everything else that we worship it promises to give, but in reality, it takes. Jesus is the only one who says, if you worship me, I will give. And he does. He does. And he does it by taking our death and giving us his life. And I believe that here today, and I, I include myself in this, I said like one of the hardest parts of Preparing a sermon is that you have to wrestle with your own heart before this. And this is something I'm wrestling for. So I, I, I believe many of us need to rediscover our awe of Jesus. The fact that he is beautiful. The fact that he is worthy above everything else in our lives. And the fact that we need to let go of all those other things that we are worshiping. And again, turn to him. Follow that sign and worship him. Because here's the thing. If you trust him this morning, he is your Lord and your Savior. Like Lazarus, we've all been raised from the dead, right? Not physically, but spiritually. When you trust that sacrifice on the cross, it says we've been raised from death to life. In the same way that Judas's life, the fact that he's living is a, is a sign that points to Jesus, 
Our lives become a sign that point to him. It no longer becomes about us and us wanting to consume and worship other things. It becomes about us wanting to be a sign that points to his goodness, that points to his grace. Because when we worship, how we live our day-to-day lives, it's a thank you to Jesus. Hebrews talks about it being a sacrifice of praise. So I'd like to invite the band back up. And I'd love us to offer a sacrifice of praise. But not that it just begins and ends with a song. And that our whole lives become this sacrifice, this of worship to him because he's worthy. That we too may spread this fragrance and aroma of Christ. Would you stand with me? I'd love to pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the beautiful picture of Mary and Martha, their devotion to you, their love for you, and their worship of you. Lord, I pray that you forgive me. I pray that you forgive us where our hearts have been turned away to worship other things. Lord, we want to come back to you this morning and we want to worship you as the one that is above all else. Lord, we thank you that you never disappoint, that you never fail, that you always satisfy and that you always give. Lord Jesus, we love you.